Well, we are about halfway through the book of Ephesians, and this morning, you get me. Uh, my name is Pastor Dave Mergens. For those of you who don't know me, uh, also known as the pastor with the fun size beard, uh, that should help you distinguish between Trinity and I on a week-to-week basis. And you get me for two weeks, so Trinity's beard will look that much bigger after you look at mine for two weeks. Promise you that. So halfway through Ephesians, we're looking today as Paul prays to conclude his remarks on chapters one through three. And so I've titled the sermon, Paul's Prayer, because that is essentially what it is. It is Paul praying. Uh, before we get to today's text, uh, let's begin with a, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I just invite you into this moment that the words that Paul wrote the prayer that he prayed would become crystal clear to us in our minds, that your Holy Spirit would discern for us the wisdom embedded in the text this morning, that I could get out of the way, Lord, and that you could speak prominently from up front to all of us this morning. God, help us to think clearly and to see and be filled with awe for who you are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What is the biggest prayer you've ever prayed? Think about that for a second. What is the biggest prayer that you've ever prayed? Maybe it was for the health of a loved one or the salvation of someone close to you. Uh, Perhaps it was for a job or for uh, some circumstance in life that this is very difficult for your family or a challenging time for your community. Barna, they're a group that does a lot of surveys on individuals, did a survey called Silent and Solo. And that was, in effect, because of the result of the survey about prayer lives of Americans. 82% of people pray alone silently, according to the survey. 13% of the people surveyed pray out loud alone. 2% of people pray with others, and another 2% pray in a church gathering setting of that sort. That's how people prayed as they surveyed individuals. The next thing they asked was, what do people pray about? At the top of the list, people prayed about things they were thankful for, right? There's a lot of things that we're thankful for, and actually, I was surprised that that made the top of the list. Um, as a pastor, I typically receive prayer requests for, uh, for concerns that people have, and so I would thought that would have been, uh, but Thanksgiving was at the top. The next thing that people prayed for was for family, for community needs, uh, personal guidance, and then health and wellness. So as we go into Paul's prayer this morning, here's one thing that I, I know to be true about Scripture— Scripture cannot mean something to us that it did not mean to those who originally wrote it and received it. And as we examine Paul's prayer, what I really want you to just distill out of Paul's prayer this morning is what was on his mind as he prayed this prayer, because his words reveal his heart. And so as we look at this prayer, you'll start to see some of these things. Uh, William James was one of the smartest people to have ever lived. He had one of the highest IQs, and he quoted this. He said, your life consists of what you pay attention to. I'd like to add a word to that. Your prayer life (laughs) consists of what you pay attention to. 
And that really is true for us as it was true for Paul, that when Paul prays, we learn something about how he saw the church, how he saw who God was, what God was doing. And so Paul's prayer reveals something to us very powerful because it was a big prayer. What was on Paul's mind? Um, Just a recap as we look back from chapter 1 in Ephesians all the way to where we are in chapter 3, verse 14 today. Um, Paul started the book of Ephesians out, and you can open your Bibles up to the book of Ephesians because I'm really going to take us on a deep dive into some of the stuff that Paul was speaking to, and we'll flip back and forth all over the text today. But I, I want you to understand where Paul was going with this. So he began Ephesians by talking about who we are in Christ, which was really a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God. And some of the realities of who we are in Christ were chosen, we're loved, we're adopted, we're blessed, we're forgiven. We are inheritors of all that Jesus would inherit from God, that we too would be co-heirs with Christ. And that's how Paul begins the letter of Ephesians. He goes on to talk about and pray for his reader to have the eyes of their heart opened. Paul wanted those that he was writing to, to not just understand intellectually what was going on, but that their hearts would know something different. Because church family, when Jesus died and rose again, everything changed. And while we have been alive in a generation and an age where we've known this, as it's been taught, if you've been in the church since day one, this was new to them. Everything was different. And Paul wanted their eyes of their hearts to be open to this. Paul also was very clear that they were dead in their transgressions and alive in Christ. It's actually the first example of a biblical zombie, that they were dead and walking around, and that Christ needed to reanimate them by changing their heart out for a heart of flesh that knew and was receptive to Christ. And it was by grace through faith that people now had purpose, they had meaning, that they were God's masterpiece. This was all possible because of what Christ had done. This is what Paul was saying. And then, as you heard last week and previously when Pastor Trinity preached into chapter 3, there was a mystery that God had in Jesus that is now revealed. There's a mystery that now we can know. And the beauty in that, too, is that as we work this mystery out as part of the church, we are not just learning this on our own. We're also teaching the supernatural world through the revelation of the church what this mystery looks like. The church is the first fruits of this whole mystery that's being revealed as Christ was the first fruits of those who rose from the dead. And so Paul has all these things in his head and now he's going to pray. He's going to pray a big prayer. And this prayer was right on the edge of what he's about to say in chapters four through six, which is what this might mean, what it actually does mean and could mean for future relationships. That if all the stuff about Jesus was true and this mystery has been revealed and this is who we are in Christ and all this stuff is true, now Paul prays. You ready to read the prayer with me? Okay, let's look at it together. Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 21. I'm gonna pause a little bit here at the beginning to explain a couple things. Verse 14, for this reason... 
What is the reason? It's everything I just explained to you. (laughs) Chapters 1 through 3 leads up to this prayer. There's all this information, all this new reality, this newness in Christ that we now have. And for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. You see, there are multiple families. There's a human family, and then there's a supernatural family as well, where we get supernatural beings. Pastor Trinity talked a little bit about this this last week, but we'll see this as Paul continues through Ephesians as we get to the end. And Paul talks about our battle not being against flesh and blood. Humans, our battle is against spiritual power, against the spiritual realities and the beings that are there. And so there's these two worlds that Paul's talking about. And in verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God is over all. He's over all. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath and the length, and height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. (laughs) Paul doesn't write light and fluffy stuff, does he? There is a lot here. When you look in verse 16, I want you to catch the tone that Paul's saying this in. So he's literally getting on his knees and bowing in prayer to the Father that the full riches of his glory, that through them and according to them, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, that the riches of his glory. Think about just that phrase for a second. What does that actually mean? Well, Paul, like all of the New Testament writers, had the Old Testament in mind. Uh, Sometimes the Old Testament gets a bad rap because it's hard to read. Sometimes it doesn't make sense as you read it, and it is a challenging book. But it's important to know because as we read the Old Testament, we're getting a little bit of the information that was in the mind of the New Testament writer. So Paul would have known what was said in Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm just going to read this. This is not a slide, so don't panic back there if you're worried for the slide. Uh, It's in Isaiah 6, so just listen to what uh, Paul would have known this about Isaiah. It says this, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, two to cover their faces, two to cover their feet, and two to fly. And they called to each other, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. That is a picture, just a picture of the riches of God's glory. So Paul is praying that according to the riches of God's glory, that we would get all of this stuff that he was talking about from chapters one all the way to three, verse 14, according to that. A couple things you'll also want to note as we continue to process to this. Um, Paul is writing this to a group of people, not 
an individual. I think this is a temptation as we read and try to look at scripture ourselves, is that whenever we see the word you, we think me. I think it's about me. And and it, it is, but Paul, when he writes you in Greek, is writing it in plural form, you all. <laughs> so every time you see the word you in Ephesians, you can assume that Paul is saying you all. He's not speaking to individuals. He's speaking to the church, the collection of people, you in this room, the collection of people who comprise the body of Christ as he was writing to in the region of Ephesus. So this is who Paul was writing to, this whole group of people. In this prayer, you'll also see, if you pay attention closely to it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all represented in these few verses. Paul is talking about all of God, his riches, his glory, his three persons, all of God being leveraged to all of you. That's what Paul is praying for. This is a huge prayer. It's a huge prayer. And so as I wrestled with this this week uh, and thinking about, okay, how do I present this? Uh, typically, I, I generally get more, um, sometimes it's easier for me to do a topical sermon where I can just pick a topic and then uh, exegete passages of scripture and talk about a topic. But as we've been going through Ephesians, now we're to a part that is so dense and there's so much we could talk about. I want to cover three specific movements in this prayer because there are three things in here I believe that would be helpful for us to meditate on and think about this morning as we dive into it. They really do set up chapters four through six. So after my sermon today, it's kind of like halftime in the book of Ephesians. So we're, we're ending uh, one part of the book. And then the next part of the book will be all the ramifications of what Paul talked about in chapters one through three. Uh, it's one of the few Pauline letters that divides neatly this way that you can kind of see a clear, okay, here's where Paul was. This is what you should know. And then this is how it applies. So we're kind of at the end of that part where Paul is praying about all the things that he wants you to know right before we get to how this might apply. Uh, Pastor Trinity actually talked about this last week a little bit when he talked about the why the why behind the Christian life. If you just live the Christian life because you should, you're missing the point. It's not about the rules. It's about the relationship with Christ. And that if my life in Christ and my life in the church is motivated from the why, which is Christ's death and resurrection, his immense love for me, then I am more motivated than anyone to want to live the life that Christ called me to. It's about the why. And so we're going to talk about that too as we kind of get through this and into the next uh, section next week too. But look at verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is an incredibly radical statement by Paul. It's incredibly radical. Why? Because the group of people that he was writing to grew up with a worldview that spiritual beings, God, if you were a Jew, is who they worshipped. Other gods, if you were non-Jewish, they worshipped. They believed that those spiritual beings and their spirits resided in idols and temples. That's what they believed. That's why they would worship idols. That's why the Jews would go to the temple. That's why there was the Holy of Holies. We know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that the curtain, the veil was torn, separating the Holy of Holies from everyone else. 
but the worldview had predominantly been up until this time that God's spirit didn't reside in people. He resided in his temple. And that's where people would go to worship. So when Paul says that he's praying for you all to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, he's making a bold statement here. He's saying that God's spirit can and does dwell within people. God didn't intend it to be in the temple forever or in an idol forever, represented elsewhere forever. He intended his spirit to be through the people of Israel, proclaimed to the nations, and then eventually it was through Christ who after his death and resurrection sent the coming of the Holy Spirit, God intended for his spirit eventually to be in and through us. And we know that if we go all the way back to Ezekiel chapter 36, where this is talked about in the Old Testament. Paul also would have known this. It says this, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. So just pausing there for a second. Remember, Israel was God's chosen people. They were meant to be the essence, the, the, the scent of God to all the nations, but they mixed worshiping God with worshiping other idols. So then we get to verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name because God's name doesn't dwell with sin. It doesn't dwell with idol worship. It doesn't dwell with anything but the purity of a love for God and a worship for God, but they profaned it. Which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart, give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God, through Ezekiel, told his people, there's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where God's spirit will dwell within you. And this should sound like something, these few verses in Ezekiel. It should sound like something where God's gathering all the people together and the Holy Spirit comes upon people and there's baptism and there's, there's this, this, this unity that comes from that. It should sound like Acts chapter 2. This was Pentecost. This is where the people came from all over and spoke different languages and here they were coming together and Jesus said, go to Jerusalem and wait for my spirit. And then the spirit came and all these devout followers of God came together to worship him. And as God's spirit was poured out, what ended up happening was they understood each other. They spoke different languages, but now they all understood each other. And if you remember all the way back to, to Genesis, you have the Tower of Babel 
which if you remember, was when God came down and confused the languages and disunity was the result. And now you have an example of the spirit coming in in Pentecost and bringing such unity that they could all understand each other where previously they didn't. You see, the the spirit brings unity between people. That's what he does. And now that spirit was not in a temple. That spirit was in people. And as you see, as we get into chapter four, the thing that Paul starts out with is unity in the church because that's the implication. So we have this this beautiful moment where the Holy Spirit's presence is being revealed by Paul and being talked about as this unifying presence, this power to strengthen the inner person. Told you I was going to take you on a little bit of a deep dive this morning. I just covered most of the Old Testament in a few verses with all these thoughts and in this whole trend of things that are going on. But it's so important because Paul had the Old Testament in his mind when he wrote what he did. He knew what the prophecies were. He understood the implications. He saw all the big picture and here's where he was. So why would he pray this? Why would he pray this particular prayer? The Holy Spirit, as we follow him, does a couple things. He brings the church together and he leads us to obey God. Um, this, uh, this last weekend, I was not here uh, on church property. I was up in Pine River, Minnesota at Trout Lake Camp. And I was at Trout Lake Camp with a bunch of middle schoolers. We had 37 middle schoolers and a bunch of adult leaders in a group of over 300 uh, students and leaders from various churches all over. In fact, that's where three of our white roses came from, was from God's work in the lives of three middle school students who were on that trip, which is phenomenal. And as I was on that trip, we had some free time. And on this free time, there's this high ropes course that they built. And it is four stories tall. <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, I don't like heights, but I, am my, uh, I love the students and I want to be a team player. So I'm like, I'll go up there with you. So I'm up there, you know, just trying to get through the course, grin and bearing it. And then, and then you get to the end and there you have an option. You can either walk down through the steps or you can step off a platform from four stories up and trust a basketball-sized device to lower you down. And it looks something like this. Yeah, that's my daughter, Hazel, who just jumped off there. She made it look easy, but let me tell you, when you are four stories up looking down and the person up there is like, okay, read this, read the instructions to me out loud so you understand it. And then he coaches you on what to do. And then he says, get to the edge of the platform. And he says, I'm going to count to three. And then I want you to step off the platform. That is a moment where you have to put faith in somebody. (laughs) Because your heart's pounding a million miles an hour. And trust me, there were people who went up to that and were like, uh, nope, I ain't doing this. And they walk back. <laughs> but see, that's the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. Is like the individual who was up there coaching us as we got to the edge of the platform saying, here's what I'm going to have you do. <laughs> I'm going to hook this up to you. You're going to read these instructions. I'm going to have you get to the edge of the platform. You're going to step off and the auto belay will catch you and you will lower yourself down. And so in that moment, you had to have faith. (laughs) But you had this person right there by you saying, it's okay. Take this step. 
You'll be fine. You'll do it. And of course, by this point, that individual had trained you on how to get through the ropes course. They'd worked with you. You had a little bit of trust in them because everything has worked up to this point. So when you get to this moment, you have just enough faith to step off. And that's like the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. He allows us to live for God in ways we previously were not able to because of his presence in our inner being. That's what he does. Galatians 5.25 says it this way. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Something about our church I want to clear up. Uh, One of our values here at Alexandria Covenant is that we are a spirit-led church. What does that mean? By tradition, we are not overly charismatic. We're not extremely emotional in worship, uh, nor is our tradition. But hear me closely. Spirit-led is not simply about emotions. It's not simply about charisma. Being spirit-led is having a resolve and a willingness to obey God's spirit. That's what spirit-led is is that when the Holy Spirit is present in your life and he nudges you in a direction, sometimes that is emotional, sometimes that is charismatic, but not always. Being spirit-led is listening to, being sensitive to, being a temple in which the Holy Spirit can dwell in your life and your inner being and paying attention to him and letting him say, it's okay, you can step. Four stories up, you can step off, you'll be fine. That's what it's like. In the covenant tradition, the question was always this, how was your walk? How's your walk going? Because we must keep in step with the Spirit, that relationship that builds confidence that when he moves us, then we move. The second component is this. It's to comprehend the dimensions of God's love. In verse 18, he talks about, Paul says, the language here, the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. All four of those words are measurement words. They're all about spatial dimensions. So in order to catch the dimensions of God's love, we have to measure it somehow. Comprehension that comes from seeing the big picture. You can't measure something if you just go up to it and measure a part of it. You have to see the whole thing in order to get the full picture of what it is. So how do we measure All the dimensions of God's love as Paul prays about it. Uh, This May, uh, my family and I went to to the ark. In fact, you'll see a picture on the screen behind me. This is my family and I. We uh, we were on a road trip and we decided we're going to go see the ark. And I know you're distracted by my cute family and my tiny beard, but behind me, you'll see the ark. (laughs) This was the ark or a replica of the ark that we went to go see. Maybe some of you have seen this. And it was done in such a way to give you just some picture of the scope of this ark. They took their best guess based on what the Bible said. They recreated it. And they'd say all throughout there where they took creative liberties and figured it out. But, but the point is that you got a better picture of what the ark was like by going to see something that was measured out. So how do we comprehend God's love and measure it out? Verse 18, you'll notice it says, with all the saints. Paul's prayer is only realized if it's done tangibly within the church. Folks, you can't understand God's love by yourself. That's not how we were made. 
We were made to understand God's love in community, in church. And that's not simply church attendance. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7 says it this way. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. Do you see why God gave us spiritual gifts? So that as we interact with each other and use our spiritual gifts, we get another measurement of God's love, a tangible sense of what that looks like. When you go downstairs and watch the, the, the volunteers serving in kids' church, you see God's love. When you come in the doors here at this church and you watch our greeters greet, you're seeing God's love. When you hear our worship team lead worship, you're experiencing God's love. When you hear me preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're experiencing God's love. Folks, it's the church. That's how we tangibly measure God's love. And if you feel like you're missing out, get involved, participate. Come on a youth trip with me. <laughs> Maybe start with greeting at the door because you might not want to step off a floor four stories high. That's a little extreme. But get involved in the church, participate, and then you will see God's love in a way you couldn't previously. The last one is this. It's experience the love of God. Well, Pastor Dave, didn't you just talk about that? Well, kind of. But what does Paul say? In verse 19, he says, to know the love that surpasses knowledge. <laughs> How do you know something you can't know? To know the love that surpasses knowledge. I had to read that a few times. Here's how. When my kids were really little, there was an awful lot they didn't know about me. But I'll tell you one thing. If anything scary happened in our house, in our life, and anything happened, you know where they'd run? They'd run to dad. Because they knew me. They had a relational connection with me. You see, we know even though we don't know all the propositions about something, we can know and trust somebody because we have a relationship with them. John 10, 10, John 10 14 through 15 says, I am the good shepherd. I know, my, I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Paul uses a word, English doesn't do it justice. There's two words in Greek to represent the word know. Oida is one of them, and that means to know about somebody, right? Know the details about their life, to, to know facts about them. But gnosko is a intimate, personal knowing. It's a relational knowing. So how do you know beyond knowledge? <laughs> you know by being in relationship with somebody. And that's what Paul is praying, that we would be in relationship with God. Paul's big prayer is that all of God would be leveraged into all of us, all of him, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the riches of his glory, knowing him, comprehending his love through the outpouring of the church. This is what Paul is praying for the Ephesian believers. In Paul's mind, he knew what was coming that a new way of living was right on the edge. And being filled with the fullness of God empowers us to live the life of Christ. So if you want chapters four through six of Ephesians to make a lot of sense, if you want it to make a big difference in your life, start thinking about what it looks like to be spirit-led, staying in step with the spirit. Go beyond just participating uh, in the church by attendance, by participating and serving and using your spiritual gifts and seeing other people use theirs. 
and be in relationship with God. Don't just know about him. Be in relationship with him. And if those three things that Paul prayed for those believers are true for us, then everything we're about to read in four through six is going to make total sense. It's what's next and is the application of where Paul is going. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul, for the work that you did in his life, for the radical life that came from understanding the mystery of God. Lord, and as we pray and think about what Paul's words were and how we live them out, may we be people who go beyond just knowing you, but actually know you. Thank you, God, for all the work you are doing and continue to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.